Welcome to Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In July, our CME group had our first ever live recording event in our new sound studio in Miami, a lung cancer think tank including a dozen clinical investigators. The next day, we gathered a group of medical oncologists in community practice to present real cases to three of the think tank faculty, Drs. Mark Sosinski, Rogeria Lillenbaum, and Ed Kim. To begin, Dr. Mark Safa presents a case to Dr. Sosinski. This is a 58-year-old white male presented with cough and shortness of breath. Chest X-ray showed a 3-centimeter right upper lobe mass. Biopsy revealed adenocarcinoma. His CT scan chest abdomen pelvis showed only the right upper lobe mass without mediastinal adenopathy. However, he had a single adrenal lesion suspicions for metastasis. Can you talk a little bit about the man himself? He was a teacher and he was still working and he had a history of smoking like one pack a day for around 15 years. What was his family situation? He has two children and he has excellent social support. He has a spouse? Yes. She came in with him? No, he came alone. What was his state of mind and initial diagnosis? At that time, he knew that because of his smoking history, he was not surprised with the diagnosis of lung cancer. Did he express, I'm curious in general with your patients, you know, sort of remorse about the fact that he had smoked? No. Mark? How big was the adrenal lesion? Like around two centimeters. Two centimeters. Would you be comfortable saying he has metastatic disease just on the imaging or want to biopsy it? Yeah. I guess the question is that's obviously on CT. The next thing is... If the adrenal, there are a number of characteristics of adrenal on CT that will make you feel that it's more benign or more malignant, but you need to go down the path of defining that because he could be anywhere from a stage 1A to uh, stage 4 at this point. So our standard workup at this point would be a PET in a brain MRI. Did he get that? Yeah, he had a PET scan done which showed the mass was positive. In the adrenal? In the adrenal and in the right upper lobe. Yeah, okay. Would that be enough for you to call him metastatic disease? No, I would biopsy the adrenal. Biopsy the adrenal. Is that a difficult uh, procedure? It, you know, it depends on the location, the anatomy. It's the percutaneous? It can be percutaneous. We've done a few laparoscopic when you really need to know. You know, if this gentleman who's 58 years old, not much comorbidity, you know, there's this syndrome of oligometastatic disease, and I think there are some considerations in this setting that I'd want to really know what's in the adrenal, and the only way to know that is to do a biopsy. You mean, now, would you want to just take it out? Well, yeah. I mean, if the radiologist says that's going to be tough to get to, and really the only thing you're really going to believe is a positive biopsy. I wouldn't necessarily believe a negative biopsy if it's tough to get to and it was PET positive. Then we would ask our surgical GI people to laparoscopically remove it and define it that way. And if it was PET negative, you'd leave it alone? If it were PET negative and the CT were, you know, more consistent with an adenoma, and there are some things that you can do either on MRI or with a contrast sequence CT that would increase the likelihood that this is an adenoma and those sorts of things, it would have to be a discussion if it were PET negative. But, you know, again, PET's a pretty good test for a two-centimeter adrenal nodule defining one way or the other. So with a little bit of more radiographic workup in a completely stone-negative PET, I would be comfortable not biopsying it if it were clearly PET negative. So for whatever reason you're convinced this is a MET and the adrenal gland, what would you be thinking about in terms of therapy at that point? Well, let's assume that we biopsied it. Okay. 
So obviously that's stage four disease. And if his brain were negative at this point, you had just the right upper lobe mass in the adrenal mass. You know, you could look at this as kind of the same paradigm as the solitary brain metastasis, where you would be locally aggressive in the solitary metastatic site. And, you know, having a laparoscopic procedure to take that out isn't that big of a deal. It could be done. And that might be an argument if you had the PET scan that was negative elsewhere, the brain MRI that was negative, you were trying to figure out what to do with the biopsy. I probably would just go laparoscopically and take that out so that site is done and you've defined that. So then you're left with the chest disease at this point. It's not entirely clear what the right thing is to do. You know, one could make the argument that you would then want to turn your attention to his mediastinal lymph nodes. And if he were truly node negative, think about operating initially on the right upper lobe mass if he were a good surgical candidate. It sounds like he is. And we didn't hear about pulmonary function testing, but it sounds like this guy is going to have the capacity to undergo a lobectomy. If he were node positive in the mediastinum, I think that the mainstay of therapy is chemotherapy in that setting. How aggressive to be from a local regional point of view when you have metastatic disease in the mediastinum, I think is, it's not entirely clear. And you end up having to bet with the patient. Unusual patients, we know what the kind of standard of care is for stage four disease, but there are some situations where, as we say in North Carolina, you bet with the patient. You know what's going to happen with stage four disease if you manage him like conventional stage four disease. There is a literature of patients who have solitary adrenal mets, like there is a literature on solitary brain mets, in which you're aggressive with surgery or radiotherapy to both sites, and there are some long-term survivors. This is a highly selected group of patients. If this patient were 82, I probably wouldn't be doing this, but at age 58, with no comorbidities, still working all these sorts of things, I would kind of go outside the standard of care and be a little bit more aggressive. Obviously, this has to be discussed with the patient. I will tell you, I've done this a number of times. More often than not, you lose. They show up eight, nine months later with metastatic disease, which is what they have. They have stage four disease, and the disease runs its course eventually. But I've had patients that I think that we have cured with stage four disease with a solitary brain met. I cannot remember a case in my practice of a solitary adrenal met that I thought was cured. The adrenal seems to, at least in my experience, to be a little different as a solitary met than the brain. Would you consider systemic chemotherapy first and see test the biology of his tumor? Yeah, yeah. So then the question is, what we tend to do is to give them four cycles of what we think is the best regimen. And that allows them to declare themselves. If they have great sensitivity to treatment, then you tend to be more aggressive. If they just grow through therapy, it's a whole different thing. And then I think, obviously, if you define that biology by the test of therapy, then you are, in a sense, selecting for the better patients as well as for the bad patients to define what your behavior is going to be. It's interesting uh, comparing different tumors. You think about colon cancer. We have a major project right now looking at the issue of surgically resectable hepatic mets and colon cancer. One of the things we're going to ask the researchers is, what do you do with somebody who has an asymptomatic primary and surgically resectable disease? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of similar to this patient, except it's colon cancer. And I'll tell you, I already predict 
that these people in general will start with systemic therapy. Yeah. So I know you all are seeing these different strategies and you know, you may be moving from one to the other. What did you actually do with this patient? So he was, because of the adrenal lesion, our surgeon felt with present tumor board that we could give him systemic therapy first before undergo any surgery. He got three cycles of carboplatin, taxol, and bifacizumab. At your tumor board, did you discuss you know, taking the adrenal out? or We did discuss that because we recommended that, but the radiologist, because it was difficult location and the PET scan showed that the lesion is very typical for metastasis. They felt that this is most likely met. So the pathology was not done. Biopsy was not done at that But time. biopsy was done of the right upper lobe lesion? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. And how did he do on the carbotaxol? Bed? He did very well. He had only minimal symptoms. He did very well the three cycles. And what happened to the tumor? He had response of the lung and the adrenal lesion. And then he went to see the surgeon again. At that time, he had repeated scans and MRI of the brain. And the MRI showed three lesions now in the brain. In the brain. That weren't there to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of the lesion in the lung and the adrenal, was it more than 50% shrinkage? Around 20%. So he had a response, but yet at the same time developed the brain mets. Yeah. What would your initial systemic therapy have been in this situation? Probably very similar to this. I didn't hear any contraindications to using BEV. You have a good sense of the histology here. It's non-squamous. I presume he wasn't having hemoptysis. No. This was a relatively small primary, and I would probably have done the same thing. We had a big discussion yesterday, of course, about the FLEX study, looking at cetuximab in the first-line situation. Can you maybe summarize what your take is on that data and how do you think it relates to the issue of first-line therapy? Right. So before I address that, let me make one other comment about this. That is, even though I might have done the same thing, one of the questions I think is pertinent to this case is, if you're going to use bevacizumab, is carbotaxol the best chemotherapy to use in this patient? And there's emerging data on the role of histology and sensitivity to pemetrexid. This would be a situation where probably at our place, he would have ended up getting carbopemetrexid bevacizumab. In because study. it was adeno? Because it was adeno. And you knew the histology, and it's been at least EPUBed, if not published. Yeah, no, it's been published, yeah. and there's an editorial. Yeah. When did you make that change, or your institution, when did you all switch? Well, you know, it evolved between ASCO 2007 and the World Lung Meeting in September 2007. So in the last year? Yeah. So the emerging data from the large phase three trial was convincing. We learned from a retrospective on plan review of the second line HANA trial that the same histologic effect in comparing pemetrexid and docetaxel. Joey Patel at ASCO 07 and 08 had provided a nice phase two trial with the triplet combination of carbo, pemetrexid, bevacizumab. It was safe. It was well tolerated. I actually started to use this regimen in the context of the passport trial, which was a trial phase two that was designed to look at the safety of bevacizumab in non-small cell lung cancer patients treated in controlled brain mets. So I got kind of used to using it in the context of that trial. On that trial, you could choose whatever you wanted to give for chemotherapy. Actually, the first patient I saw and put on the passport trial was a patient who had received first-line therapy. I think it was with carbotaxel. And they had a very prolonged progression-free interval, like eight, nine months. Younger, good performance status patients, they progressed, had brain mets, got their brain mets treated. They were eligible for passport. Passport allowed first or second line patients. This patient had BEV first line? 
No, no, had just old just chemo. Yeah, okay. just chemo. So with that long eight-month progression-free interval in a younger patient, good performance status, you know, the right answer is second-line therapy. It's your choice of Pemetrexid, Tarceva, those sorts of things. But this was a younger person. I wanted to be more aggressive. So I said, I'm going to give them Carbo-Olympta. And then on the passport trial, they would get Bevacizumab. So actually, the first patient I treated with that regimen on the passport trial was actually a second-line patient using the triplet regimen. They tolerated it great, had a great response, was on it for a prolonged period of time, and did very well. So then I started to use it in the first line in the context of that trial. What do we know about Bev and brain meds, and particularly there was some stuff presented at ASCO about that? Yeah, obviously the initial trials, because of the initial negative experience in a hepatoma patient, you know, kind of excluded brain meds and non-small cell lung cancer. You know, we did the coalition trial, which was asking a chemotherapy question, and 18% of the patients that were entered on the coalition trial had brain meds when they presented. So this is a significant part of our practice that has brain meds. They were excluded from 4599. The passport trial was really a post approval commitment to explore the safety of it in this regimen. It was a a phase two trial that's completed its accrual, about 110 patients. The primary endpoint was safety defined as CNS bleeding. And the data that was presented at ASCO showed that there was really no grade two or higher CNS bleeding in the initial about 70 patients that were described at ASCO. I'm unaware in the additional 40 patients that were accrued after the ASCO abstract was put together have really had any problem. We hope to analyze that data and get a manuscript out by the fall. So we'll have that data. So at this point, are you okay with using BEV in a patient with treated brain meds? If a patient has treated brain meds, however you think the most effective way to treat them in that patient is, whether it be neurosurgery, whether it be whole brain radiotherapy, gamma knife, whatever, I watch them for four weeks afterwards. Now, oftentimes I'll start chemotherapy, you know, a week or so after. But with the second cycle, if everything's going well, I'm comfortable now with the passport data that was presented at ASCO. Actually, that abstract included passport as well as some patients on Atlas. So I'm comfortable doing it. I mean, this drug is used frequently in glioblastoma. It seems to be safe there. I don't know that there's an issue with non-small cell we saw a couple of abstracts looking at the safety of Bevacizumab at ASCO in terms of patients who progress in the brain. There didn't seem to be a problem. And so I'm comfortable doing it now. Another issue about Bev that we talked about yesterday, which I know there are a lot of questions that people have about, is the issue of anticoagulation. Yeah. Can you kind of review that? Well, you know, that's also an emerging story. Again, fully anticoagulated patients were excluded. I think, again, in the AVAIL trial, they did allow patients who required anticoagulation on the trial to continue on bevacizumab, which on ECOG 4599, you had to stop in that setting. And I think it was 9% of the patients receiving bevacizumab on a veil required anticoagulation. And it was both kind of Coumadin-based anticoagulations as well as low molecular weight heparins. And they could not detect any increased risk of either pulmonary hemorrhage or other hemorrhages on that I think in the kind of registries that are ongoing, looking at this, we're going to have a lot more safety data. Ultimately, I think with careful anticoagulation and monitoring that it's going to be safe, although, you know, you really need to individualize on a patient-by-patient basis in terms of the risk and the benefit in this setting. Another thing that engendered a lot of discussion that you all have seen a lot of discussion in, particularly in colon cancer, is the issue of continuation of BEV on progression switching to another chemo. You all know about the whole story that's happened in colon cancer with that. We were talking about where that is with non-small cell. Where are we? 
Yeah, you know, I think right now the 4599 paradigm kind of dominates. We continue it to progression. I personally stop it when the patient progresses and move on to other therapies. You know, I think that, you know, theoretically you can create an argument where it makes sense to continue it. And the contra argument that I consider most of the time is the fact that there are a lot of pro-angiogenic factors. And that over time, although VEGF is the dominant pro-angiogenic factor early in the life cycle of the tumor, others emerge. And therefore, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if your tumor is growing that sequestering VEGF is going to make a big difference. We probably need a new drug in study of drugs that we currently have in those patients who are bevacizumab failures. We don't have much information about that. So that's been my rationale for stopping the Bev at the time of progression. And there was actually a little bit of heterogeneity around the table yesterday with regard to that. And there were differences of opinion. You know, you know, a breast study with Kathy Miller where they saw progression-free survival and no survival. One of the thoughts is maybe when you stop the Bev, there's a rebound VEGF. We don't really know where all that's heading. What about this patient right now at this point? So this is another question I have is, do you consider this patient progress on this therapy because he had only the brain lesion? So do you consider keeping on the same chemo and Evastin or change it to something else? Because it's only the brain and the systemic disease otherwise was better. Yeah, you know, I would be pretty aggressive about treating the brain lesions at this point and probably would, if he's had a response in the lung and the adrenal, give, you know, we can argue whether it should be four or six cycles. Be interesting to maybe consider changing it to carbolimta with the BEV, treat the brain aggressively, and then continue him on single agent BEV after the chemotherapy if the systemic disease seems to be controlled.